Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast of St. Luke's in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses, and under the leadership of our senior pastor, Dr. Bob Long, we are a family of faith that seeks to share God's love and bring hope to the world. We invite you now to join us for a message of hope. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are all well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel an evil report of the land, which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw the Nephilim, the son of Anak, who came from Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why does the Lord bring us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a captain and go back to Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it the was Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes Fear me lie not, down. For I am with you. Be not dismayed. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. We know that in everything, God works for good. For those May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful. I can do all things and can be strengthened. Looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. It was on May 25th, 1961, John F. Kennedy went before Congress and he gave them a new challenge. He said, we need to fly a man to the moon and bring him home safely and do that before the end of the decade. What an audacious goal. We're going to go to the moon. In the end, it would take two and a half million people working on the project. We would have to build all new structure. We would have to create, invent new materials. We would have to invent new technology. It would cost millions and millions of dollars to accomplish that goal. But the reason that he set the goal there at Congress was because it was in 1957, October of that year, that the Russians 
put a satellite into space about the size of a basketball called Sputnik, and it orbited the earth putting out the signal, and it scared us to death. It was in April of 1961, they shot Yuri Gagarin, a cosmonaut, into outer space. He orbited the earth several times before he splashed down, becoming the first man ever in space. It scared us to death. We were so far behind in this space race that now had developed. It was in May 5th of 1961 that we finally answered with, John, with um, Alan Shepard and we shot him into space, but it wasn't, he didn't orbit the earth. It was a suborbital flight. He was in space, weightlessness, for just a few minutes. In fact, the whole flight took 15 minutes and 23 seconds but at least we had made it to outer space. And with that victory under our belt, Kennedy went to Congress and said, let's go to the moon. I want to read you what he said. Though we cannot guarantee that one day we shall be first on the moon, we can guarantee that our failure to do this will make us last. He was right. And so we decided to do it. Congress appropriated money. We began working, creating the space program. We were going to go to the moon. But Kennedy also understood he needed to keep the support of the American people. He needed to keep the support of Congress. And so he was always looking for opportunities to be able to talk about it and, and do all the things he needed to do. It was in September of 1962, a year later, he was in Houston, Texas. He was at Rice University. Now, of course, September in Texas, it was football, and that just happened to be the weekend that Rice was playing the University of Texas. And he was giving this address on the field there at Rice University. And again, was talking about going to the moon, wanting to get support of the American people. We need to stay after this dream. And again, if you haven't heard his speech in a while, it's only 18 minutes. Go Google it and listen. To me, it's one of his finest speeches ever. Let me read you part of it. He said, The exploration of space will go ahead whether we join in it or not. And it's one of the greatest adventures of all time. But why, some will say, the moon? But why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why 35 years ago fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas in football? <laughs> we choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade, not because it is easy, but because it is hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that is one challenge that we are willing to accept one we are willing, not willing to postpone, and one that we intend to win. It's a great statement. Why do we go to the moon? Not because it is easy, but because it is hard. It is true that if you want to do something that is meaningful, if you want to have purpose, then you have to do the hard thing. Whatever it is in your vision in life, 
It'll require that you give your best, that you work hard, that you are willing to sacrifice, that you do the hard thing. I was reading an article by J.K. Rowling. There's an article about her. J.K. Rowling, you'll remember, is the author of the Harry Potter series. And when you go back and look about her life, she was talking about how she was 25 years old. She was divorced. She had a little girl, a child, now a single mom. She'd escaped domestic abuse, come back to the U.K., she was on government assistance, public welfare, to try to keep a roof over her head and food on the table for she and her child, doing everything she could to make ends meet. And it's when she was 25 years old that she had this idea of a character, and she would call him Harry Potter. Now, you'll remember that Harry Potter was a character who turned 11 years old and discovered that he was a wizard. He had the power of magic, and it was magic that would change his world. Well, she started developing the story, and it would take her a number of years to develop the story. But finally, her book would come out, Harry Potter and um, the Philosopher's Stone. It was hugely successful. And over the next 10-year period, she would produce six other books as well, seven in the whole Harry Potter series, and in the end, the Harry Potter series would sell 600 million copies. She's the most successful writer in history. Incredible what she was able to do starting in such a time in her life, a single mom struggling in poverty who had a vision and imagination and dream and worked so hard. Well, in this interview, she made a fascinating comment. She said, we do not need magic to change the world. We carry all the power we need inside ourselves already. We have the power to imagine better. We have the power to act on our imagination and to change our lives if we do the hard thing. That's the question. Are you willing to do the hard things necessary to find yourself in the promised land, a new place, a different place where you might want to be. This morning, I, I want us to conclude this sermon series, A Year in the Bible. And we're going to keep on reading through the Bible the rest of the year together. But this was kind of to start the year off. And we said that we were going to be looking at Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We're reading right on through right now. And we said that what we wanted to do was to learn about characters here in the Old Testament, learn stories in the Old Testament, to see if we couldn't come to better understand the nature of God and what we need to do to live meaningful and fulfilling lives. And so we have been reading through, and it's generated a lot of questions from you, and I think that's actually been really great. But today we're reading the story of how the people of Israel now have gotten out of captivity in Egypt. God brought the angel of death. You have the Passover. And then he got through the Red Sea. And we've gotten into the wilderness. And then, of course, there was the golden calf. 
But then we've gone on and we've now moved two years all the way to the edge of the promised land. And they get to the promised land and they stop. And they send 12 spies into the land to check it out. And the spies come back and they are bringing with them all kinds of wonderful food and going, this is a land that flows with milk and honey. However, the people are here are big. They are like giants, and we are like grasshoppers in their sight. We can't do this. We need to go back to Egypt. We need to elect someone to lead us back to Egypt where we were slaves. The people of Israel were making a bad decision. We're not going to face our giants. We'd rather keep things the way they were. We will settle for slavery rather than a new and a better day. How many times do you and I decide that rather than face our giants, we will choose to go back to the way that it was? It was a bad decision for the people of Israel. They failed. When you start reading through the Bible, and if you're reading this part in this story, one of the things I want to talk about for just a moment is that a lot of times you're going to be reading some of this where it says, and when the people failed, when they did the golden calf, when they failed to enter into the promised land, God said he wanted to destroy them, and he gets very angry. And it's Moses who goes to God and says, don't kill all the people off. And he talks God out of destroying the people of Israel. I don't believe that's what happens. You see, when I look at all that God does, well, God brought them out of Egypt. God took them through the Red Sea. God gave them manna or bread from heaven. God brought water out of the rocks. God is going to guide them and lead them and strengthen them for 40 years until they finally get into the promised land. Everything God does is to sustain the people of Israel, not to see if He can wipe them out. No, I think that what we're really reading here is Moses putting on to God what he's feeling. I think Moses is angry at what the people of Israel have done. Moses feels like they deserve to be destroyed, and he's probably right. And so he's also going to think, I bet God wants to destroy them. And so Moses is always praying to God, please don't destroy the people of Israel. But God had no intention of destroying the people of Israel. He keeps doing all the things that will help them to survive. I believe that's the point of the story that we're reading here. That it is God who's going to be guiding us through the wilderness in our freedom to a better land. And that's what I want us to think about this morning. And I just want to share with you three ideas. First of all, everybody needs another chance. Everybody needs another chance. Because just like the people of Israel, we come up to a difficult moment and we see the opportunity before us and we see the giants and what will be required out of us and we make a poor decision. We say it's better and easier to go back into slavery rather than to rise up and do the hard thing. We fail. We make that mistake. I think it happens over and over 
we need another chance, which is exactly what grace is about, which is exactly what God gives to the people of Israel. He doesn't desert them in the wilderness. God is going to lead them on for 40 years. You know, this afternoon, 60% of the households here in America will be tuned to one thing, the Super Bowl. Without a doubt, it is the largest, most watched TV presentation for the entire year here in the United States every year. Between 150 million and 200 million people will be watching the Super Bowl. It is a big deal. And I have to admit this year, I am really struggling because the two teams I've cheered for the most have been the 49ers and the Chiefs. And now they're playing each other in the Super Bowl and I'm having a hard time deciding who I want to win. I know that one team I'm going to be happy and one team I'm going to be sad when they lose. It's going to be an interesting emotional game to watch. I've been doing so much study about all the different players on the team, trying to learn about who they are and some of the histories. And there's so many good people with great stories on both teams. One of them I did some research on was Travis Kelsey. He seems to be attracting a lot of attention right now. <laughs> I, I did some research on Travis Kelsey to learn about his life and where it was going on. And what a fascinating story. Growing up in a family, a good mom and dad. He had an older brother, Jason. The two boys, they loved to play and wrestle. They loved football. They loved sports. And they were very close with one another. In the end, it was Jason who graduated and got a scholarship to go play football at Cincinnati. And he talked to the coaches and said, you need to check out my younger brother, Travis. He was a quarterback in high school. And so they gave Travis a scholarship to follow and come to Cincinnati. And Jason was so excited one day. They were now, now they were getting to play on the same football team. His freshman year, Travis was obviously the backup quarterback. His team did so well, they got to go to the Sugar Bowl down in New Orleans. And when they went to the Sugar Bowl, Travis is a very happy-go-lucky sort of guy. And he knew he wouldn't be playing. And he partied a little too much down in New Orleans and drank too much and smoked a little marijuana. And suddenly there was a random drug test. And he now tested positive. When they got back home to Cincinnati and the drug test came back and the coach saw that it was positive, he called him in and threw him off the team. He said, I will not put up with it. You're giving up your scholarship. You're off the team. Travis was crushed. He loved playing football. And he was getting to play with his brother. He, had made a, he wasn't someone who was all into drugs. He was an 18-year-old kid who made a stupid mistake. And he grieved. It was his older brother, Jason, who tried to find the appropriate times to be going back to the coach and going, you know, he really is a good guy. He really is sorry. He really wants to play. And so finally the coach had a change of heart and went to Travis and said, we don't need a quarterback anymore. What I need is a tight end. And I don't have a scholarship for you. 
But if you want to try out as a walk-on, I will allow you to do so. And he took the opportunity. He worked as hard as he could. He tried out. He got a position on the team. And he worked so hard and did so well, in the end, the coach gave him a scholarship again. Now as a tight end playing there for Cincinnati. And he did really well. But it came time for the NFL draft. And all the scouts were telling people, don't touch this kid. He got thrown off his team. He is trouble. And that was the word on the street. And it appeared that he was not going to get picked in the NFL draft. But Andy Reid, who is now the coach of the Kansas City Chiefs, had been the coach of the Philadelphia Eagles. And while he was the coach of the Philadelphia Eagles, he drafted Jason Kelsey to be his center. And he held him in such high regard. What a stand-up young man. What a great athlete. What a person of character. And so now that Andy Reid was the coach at Kansas City, he needed a tight end. And so he called Jason and said, tell me about your brother. I know you'll be honest with me. Is he somebody that I can trust? Is he a stand-up guy? Will he do the hard work? And Jason said, absolutely, give him a chance. And because of Andy's relationship with Jason, when it came to draft day on the third round, they took Travis Kelsey, drafted him as a tight end, no longer quarterback, a tight end. And he came to play for Kansas City in 2013. Since that time, he has made the Pro Bowl nine times. He has won two Super Bowls. He has been labeled as one of the best, if not the best, tight end in the history of the NFL. And it's a career that was this close to not happening. Because he needed another chance. We all need another chance. And that's the good news of God's grace. The people of Israel failed. They did not confront their giants. They were afraid and wanted to go back to Egypt. God didn't quit on them. He continued to give them bread from heaven and water from the rocks and lead them through the wilderness. That's the gift of God's mercy and grace. You get another chance. So secondly, it's about understanding that we make the journey because of God. The journey through the wilderness is made because of God. The people of Israel did not ultimately make it into the promised land because of what Moses did. They made it because of what God did. That's the point of the story. It's what God did that made them into His people. To send the angel of the Passover, getting through the Red Sea, the manna from heaven, water from the rocks, the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. It's God who leads them through the wilderness. It's what God does. We are able to make it to a better life, a life of meaning and purpose and a new day 
because of what God does if we journey with Him in the wilderness. There was so much to learn for the people of Israel. That's why God gave them these Ten Commandments. Here's ten things we need to work on learning to do. The first four are all about learning how do you love God? How do you worship God? Keep the Sabbath holy. Don't work on the Sabbath. Things to say, can you keep God at the center of your life? Second six commandments. Well, they're all about how we're going to treat each other. I mean, let's start with the ideas. We're not going to steal and lie and kill. We're, not going, we're going to uh, um, honor our father and mother. If there's a young man who had a mother and father worth honoring, it was Brock Purdy, who's going to be the starting quarterback for the 49ers today. What a fascinating story. You see, his parents were people of real faith who wanted to instill these values into their children. They had three children, daughter, then Brock, and then a younger son. And they were such a close family, and all three of them were incredible athletes. Their parents were very involved in their lives, but really wanting to instill the values of the faith. And they are people of faith to this day. Well, it was Brock, ever since he was a kid, just five years old, who said, I'm going to play in the NFL. He loved football. And sure enough, he played, and then he played in high school, and then he went to college at Iowa State. And Iowa State, that is not a perennial football power, suddenly had a good time when Brock Purdy was their quarterback for four years, starting quarterback. When he was about to graduate, though he was not being ranked as a high draft pick, he knew he wouldn't be chosen in the first rounds, maybe fourth, fifth, sixth. He didn't know he'd be chosen at all. So when it came time for the draft, if you know how people do, some people get to go to the draft. They're going to be some of the first ones picked. It's a big celebration, family, friends. Other people stay home. They'll have friends in a big crowd and a party at their homes as they wait for names to be called. Well, Brock didn't want that. He didn't know if his name would be called or when, and so he wanted to be mom and dad, his sister, his brother, his grandparents. We'll just stay at home. Well, his mom, Carrie, she wanted a party, and she's a dominant force, and she is an organizer. So it was his mom, Carrie, who went out and got a cake a big cake. Congratulations. She went out and got all the balloons and she decorated the house. And then she invited 150 of their closest friends. <laughs> but she told her friends, you cannot come to the house until you hear his name called. If you hear his name called, then come to the house. We're going to have a party. If his name is never called, we're going to throw the cake away, we will pop the balloons, and we'll all go down the road. They were ready. Brock wasn't really happy about it, but it was a compromise. And so on draft day, they started watching, They're going through the first round, second, third, fourth. Finally, they got to the seventh round, and then they got to the last pick. Number 262, a lady came out on stage with a jersey that says, Mr. Irrelevant. It was the 47th year that they had this special thing, Mr. Irrelevant. If you're the last person chosen in the draft, then there's a special honor in Newport Beach, California. They have parades. They have dinners. It's a fundraising for a charitable organization. 
and you're Mr. Irrelevant. Some people take that to mean, well, you're never going to be chosen on your team. You're never going to make the team. The fact you were chosen is irrelevant. That's not what the original founders meant. The people who came up with this idea meant it is irrelevant if you were chosen last in the draft because you've been chosen. And now you get a chance. You get an opportunity. It's irrelevant if you're chosen last. So you're Mr. Irrelevant, the last choice in the draft. You get a chance. Well, they're down to the last pick. The phone rings. Brock goes into another room to take the call. And he comes back and he says it was just another call about free agency. Actually, it had been the 49ers telling him that they were going to choose him. But he didn't want the family to know. And then suddenly there his picture pops up. There, And for number 262, the end of the draft, it is Brock Purdy. And his family goes wild. It's kind of like they didn't care whether he was chosen number one or chosen number 262. He had been chosen, just like it was supposed to mean. And 150 people descended on their house. <laughs> and it was a party. He had been chosen. But then there's training camp. And he made it. He got through training camp, and he was chosen to be their third string quarterback. The chances playing are somewhere nil. But he was third string quarterback. The 49ers had no idea how important that was. Because when they started the 2022 season, Trey Lance, great kid, very talented. He was their own number one choice. He started for them, made it a game and a half. In the second game, he was injured, and it was an injury that would take him out for the season. And so in came Jimmy Garoppolo, their previous quarterback, starter. He came in and played the next 10 games, played incredibly well. They now had an 8-4 and four record. They were the leaders of their division. And in that 13th game, he gets injured, and he'll be out for the rest of the season. And suddenly they have to turn to their third-string quarterback. And now Brock Purdy comes in to play. And they beat the Miami Dolphins. And then he starts the next week, and they win again and again and again. They will win the last five games of the season they will make it into the playoffs and win the first two playoff games. They're in the NFC championship game against the Eagles. And in the first quarter, he gets hit. And we, they didn't know it at that moment, but seriously damaged his elbow. He would not be able to continue to play. The 49ers would lose. And Brock Purdy had to have surgery. And they said the rehabilitation will be such he will not be ready to start the next season. But Brock did the hard thing. He came home and he worked so very hard for rehab. And when the season came along, he wasn't at 100%, but he was ready to start. And they now decided, even though everybody else was back, Brock was going to be the number one quarterback. And he led them to an incredible season, number one in the NFC. And they won their playoff games. And now they're in the Super Bowl. And today, he'll be the third youngest quarterback ever to start in the Super Bowl. The only Mr. Irrelevant to ever start as a quarterback in the Super Bowl. And I saw an interview. It was so great. They were saying, you must be anxious and afraid. 
And he said, well, yes, you get anxious. And I said, well, you seem so calm out there. Is it your faith that helps you? And he said, yes. And I said, well, do you have a favorite scripture? Yes. It's Psalm 23. I love it when Psalm 23 says, Yea, that I walk through the valley. And he didn't say death. I walk through the valley of difficulty. I am not afraid, for thou art with me. He says, I love the part when it says, Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. I'm thinking of all those defensive linemen and linebackers. <laughs> he said, it helps to keep me calm, to give me the courage. He's going to be playing today. Don't know how it'll all work out today. Doesn't matter, already been great. It's the issue that he believes very much he is making this journey, and it is a God who continues to strengthen, to guide, and to lead him to where it is. And I love it when he says, I am not defined by football wins and losses. You and I make the journey because of God, with God. The people of Israel make it to a new day, a different day, because of God. And so do we. If God gives us another chance because of His grace, and if God is the one who is leading us through the journey, then third, we're expected to do the hard thing. It's not about God sitting, us sitting back and God's going to go fight the giants for us to go into the promised land. That's what the people of Israel would have liked. There's some giants in there. God, if you'll go take care of that, it'll be wonderful for us. But they made a decision. They'd rather go back and keep life the way that it was they choose not to go in. But our responsibility is to do the hard thing. To be willing to sacrifice and give our best. If there's something that we believe that we are called to do, to where we're going to make this world a better place, a life of meaning and purpose, are you willing to do the hard thing? Not long ago I was out in our garden. I was looking at our angel of hope. If you haven't been out there, I wouldn't go today, but you can choose a day soon to go out in the garden and enjoy the Angel of Hope. We have a special worship service every year in December where we remember those in our family of faith who've died and we take white roses and lay them in the hands of the angel. It goes back to Richard Paul Thomas who had written a book called The Christmas Box and it was about a mother who had lost a child and she was really struggling with her grief. She went to a cemetery and found an angel, and there she got a words of hope. Well, when the book came out, and it's about all of this, everybody in Salt Lake City started going to a cemetery looking for this angel. And so Richard Paul Thomas had it cast and put into the cemetery. And other people started asking, and so now 120 angels are in cemeteries all across America. And when the bombing happened, and so many children here died. It was Richard Paul Thomas who sent a copy of the Christmas box angel, the angel of hope, to Oklahoma City in honor of our children. It was given to the Red Cross, 
and then the Red Cross said, we have nowhere to display it. St. Luke's was so involved in the bombing, why don't you take it and put it in the garden so it'll be available to people 365 days a year? So we do, and every year we have a worship service where we remember and we talk about it and the meaning of it, and we use it every single year. Well, Richard Paul Thomas is a fascinating story. He was someone as a young man who wanted to be an author more than anything in his life. He just wanted to be an author. He was married and had a couple of kids. He worked at an agency, but he wanted to write. And so for, he was very poor. He decided for Christmas to give his kids a gift and write them a short book. And when he sat down and started to write, it came so quickly, he felt like it was a gift. And the book came. And so he wrote, and then he took what little money he had, and he had it made into 15 books, copies, and he gave it as Christmas presents to his family that year. And people read it, and they loved it, and they all said, you ought to publish this. Well, this is before e-publishing. It's before Amazon. It's before major book companies. Getting a self-published book out back in 1991, 2, 3, was so hard. But he started getting some published, giving them to the local bookstores. They were selling, and it became a bestseller there in his hometown. But he felt like there needed to be some other way to get it out there. So he decided to take a chance and go to a booksellers convention in Denver. He rented a table where you go in and you sit down, and people who are book buyers, they come in and they're getting all these books and reading and deciding what they wanted to buy for their store to sell. And that's how you try to get your name out. Well, he was in a room with a bunch of unknowns and no one was there. One person came up to his booth and he went to the person who was running this thing and said, where are all the people? And they said, well, they're in Salon B. And he went over to Salon B and opened the doors and the room was packed. It's like all around the perimeter, there were all these tables set up as stages and people were sitting there signing books and handing them out. And he thought, this is where I need to be. But this was all these successful, famous authors. But he noticed upon one place on a stage, there was one empty seat. And the thought came to him, I could take that seat. But if I do that, someone's going to notice and I'm going to get thrown out. And that's going to be so embarrassing, so humiliating. I can't do that. And he turned around and walked back to his salon. And as he did, he heard a voice say, if you don't believe in the message of the book, who will? And he went back and picked up his books with all the courage he could find and turned around and went back to Salon B and walked in and went over onto the stage and sat down at the table, looked at the guy next to him and said, sorry, I'm late. Okay, the guy keeps signing. He's getting all set up and ready to go when he looks up and there's a lady coming across, making a beeline straight towards him. And he knows he's about to get thrown out. And she comes all the way up to him and he says, sorry, I'm late. And she just stands there in silence looking at him. Finally, she says, would you like a glass of water? Yes. 
She goes off. He starts signing books, and he's handing them out right and left now. As people start reading the book and all these booksellers, they start sending orders in more and more and more, and suddenly he is getting traction on this book, The Christmas Box. And it's one of those kinds of one in a million times where a self-published book starts gaining traction and more and more happening. By the end of the year, it was number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Now he had a contract and he had a publicist. And now it was being turned into hardback and paperback. And it was the first time that a hardback and paperback were both number one on the bestseller list at the same time. It's the way that it had happened. It was the most incredible thing. And now as publicists said the next year, we want you to go on a book signing tour. We want to get your name out there and you signing books. We want to start at a booksellers convention in Denver, Colorado. And so the next year, he was showing back up in Denver at the convention. And there they would have a publication of all the people who are the authors there, these well-known people and all about them. And it was his picture on the cover of the magazine. And he walked into the salon and there were all these tables around set up on the stage and there was one with his name. And he walked over and he sat down started thinking about the last year. And as he was thinking about it, he suddenly noticed there was a woman coming across. And he looked at her and realized it was the same woman. And she came across to him and stopped, and he simply looked at her and said, Do you know who I am? And she said, Well, Mr. Evans, everybody knows who you are. No. Do you know who I am? And she breaks into a smile and says, you're the man who crashed the book signing last year. <laughs> when you came across last year, that's exactly right. When you came last year, I knew you were going to throw me out. I was. That's my job. Then what happened? She said, when I came across to you, and I stood there in front of you, I heard a voice. And the voice said, let him stay. Let him stay. And so I did. I'm glad things have worked out so well for you. When you do the hard thing, it's amazing how things work out because it is God who is leading us through the journey in the wilderness and God who gives us the opportunities and gives us another chance. And you and I do make it into the promised land if we are willing to do the hard thing. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.
Amen. You've been listening to the sermon podcast of St. Luke's Methodist Church in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses. Learn all about St. Luke's different services and programs on our website, stlukesokc.org. We trust you will experience God's love and hope throughout this week.